thanks be to Hannah as well. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, gracious and uh, holy God, as we've already sung this morning, you are indeed the source of all light, the source of all wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Father, as we consider various things, uh, things that have happened, things which you have done uh, in the past today, uh, Father, please uh, give us wisdom and understanding and uh, apply to each of our hearts that which is relevant, true, applicable, and right. Uh, to the glory of God and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, we continue uh, today with um, number two of a short six-part series of sermons, um, a little bit of church history for us to think about. Um, and this series is entitled The Birth of Catholic Christianity, A.D. 90 to 312. Um, and today we'll be looking at the formation of something that we well and truly know and take for granted, and that is this thing, the Bible. Now, today... The Bible is one book containing 66 separate and distinct documents referred to individually also as books. Uh, so, for example, the book of Genesis, the book of Acts, etc., etc. So we've got one book containing 66 books, and those 66 books are divided into two portions. Uh, the Old Testament, uh, well, that contains 39 books. And they were all written, all, all recorded, well before Jesus was born. Um, indeed, the last of them about 400 years before Jesus was born. And very generally, those 39 books record the story of Israel as God's chosen people. And then we have the New Testament, containing 27 books, all written after Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, roughly written somewhere between 55 AD and 90 AD. And very generally, these books record the story of Jesus as God's Messiah and the birth and growth of the church, um, Israel in Christ, God's chosen people. But for much of the first three centuries after Jesus' ascension back into heaven, when Christians came together... They had a vast library of different works to read together and to talk about. They had the Old Testament scrolls. They had apostolic writings and letters and letters from various bishops and books and monographs written by various Christian thinkers. But various forces, both internal and external, forced the early Christians to think hard about, out of all of this library whether some books were special and how they were special and which ones were special. And the special ones were, made it into one book, the Bible. Well, today is the story about how that happened. So let's start with Jesus. Jesus, as a Jewish man, he understood that God had spoken to humanity through the prophets, beginning with Moses. These words had been recorded so that the Jews were in possession of Holy Scripture, or often in the plural, Holy Scriptures, the Scriptures, sacred Scripture. All God's Word, even the bits between the quotations, even, even the bits that said, and God said, even that was God's Word. It was all God's Word. 
um, a written document with the authority of God, God's word, his authority. And Jesus in his teaching is constantly referring to Holy Scripture, what we know essentially as the Old Testament, as authoritative and foundational. Have you never read what is written in the law? How do you read it? What did Moses command you? And Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus everywhere teaches the Holy Scriptures as authoritative, foundational, and the vehicle for revealing God's will. Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus is, is, is talking to uh, two of his disciples on a, on a walk, and he says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Well, what is God's will? God's will is that we might know and follow Jesus, his son. The Old Testament teaches this authoritatively as God's word. And in our reading that Hannah brought to us this morning from Luke chapter 4, we noticed that when Jesus went to church, when Jesus went to the synagogue, they handed him a scroll. Uh, it was covered in sugar and cinnamon and came with a cover. No, not, uh, not that type of scroll. Um, uh, Isaiah was not a book. Isaiah was a scroll, um, not a um, codex with the pages bound on one side and one side only. Um, Isaiah was its own scroll, and Jewish synagogues and first, uh, the first Christian churches following them, they didn't have one book, but rather they had a collection of scrolls. And some of these places might have had quite a library, others just a few, because they were very expensive. But as the church grew, which scrolls and why? Well, Two people that perhaps we should know about are Marcion and Montanus. Firstly, Marcion. Around 140 AD, a wealthy young man, a ship owner, came to Rome from his native home of Sinope on the Black Sea. Uh, um, Marcion was um, the son of a bishop. Um, in, in that graphic, I can't make out his face. I think somebody's come and scratched it off um, because they were angry with him. But um, there we have it. He, he, he came to Rome, and in Rome uh, he heard the teachings of a man named Cerdo. And Cerdo was a Gnostic. Um, and Gnostic, that means he was into something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, it's, if you'll forgive me a tangent just for a moment, it's actually also something worth knowing about. Gnosticism means knowledge. Um, agnostic, by the way, means no knowledge or not knowing. Gnosticism means I know, yeah, knowledge. And Gnosticism refers to a whole bunch of religious cults that sprang up in the 2nd century AD. 
uh, but they were coming into existence in the first century around the same time that the New Testament was being written. Gnosticism kind of borrowed ideas from all over the place, Greek philosophy, um, um, the Hebrew scriptures, Christian ideas, and kind of melded them all together. Gnosticism tended to assume, though, an ancient Greek worldview, the idea that there are two basic worlds, uh, the world of physical things and matter, and then the world of spiritual things and ideas. Um, The the, the former, the the, the physical material world, according to the Greek mind, is inherently lesser, debased, inferior sordid. No, no, no. It's the, it's the world of, of spiritual things and the abstract that is elevated and higher and, and good and pure. That's how Greeks thought. And it is a worth, it's worth knowing a little bit about these Gnostic heresies which began to emerge in New Testament times because occasionally we can catch glimpses of the apostles speaking to kind of proto-Gnostic ideas as Gnosticism began to develop in their own time. For example, in 1 John, the Apostle John writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. You you see, a Gnostic person could passionately believe in Jesus and say, oh yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but, but steadfastly refuse to believe that Jesus was really a human being. Because that would have meant that God had become matter, physical, material. Ugh, gross. That's impossible. Jesus, the Gnostics taught, only appeared to be human. And that, says John, is not Christian. Spiritually speaking, that's not the Holy Spirit. No, no Jesus really was fully human. Matter matters to God. The other reason why it can be good to know a little bit about Gnosticism is that actually we all need from time to time to catch Gnostic tendencies in ourselves and in the church today. Um, uh, uh, sometimes p- people will say, oh, that, that, that person, he, he or she is, 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 is so heavenly minded, they're of, no, they're of no earthly use. Have you heard that phrase? Uh, well, if, uh, I don't know what that person is on. I don't know what they're smoking, but that's not, that's not Christian spirituality. Um, it's impossible if we're reading the Bible and praying for us to be so, the more heavenly minded we are, the greater earthly use will be. Um, well, Serdo, as a Gnostic, getting back to this, this Gnostic guy, he believed and taught that the God of the Old Testament was different to the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, Serdo believed, was unknowable and only interested in justice. The 
God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, on the other hand, was God revealed, God knowable, uh, a God interested in inclusion and grace and what we would call unconditional love. And just as an aside, this is a continuingly common misconception. It still arises. People still say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, whereas the God of the New Testament is a God of forgiveness, love, and grace. Well, it's just a misconception. Even a brief glance at either testament, a brief glance at the Bible dispels it. No, one of the most astonishing things about the Bible is that the character, nature, and purposes of God remain astonishingly and gloriously consistent from Genesis way on down to Revelation. It's the same God, obviously, working out his purposes. Nevertheless, uh, Marcion, uh, he was impressed by Serdo's teaching, and he, he developed these ideas further, holding and teaching that the Old Testament was full of vengeance and wrath and was actually it was evil, and therefore it had to be rejected. Uh, the God of the Old Testament, he thought, was only interested in saving the Jews, and otherwise he wanted to destroy everybody else. He was a God of wrath and vengeance. But the New Testament, God, he was a God of, of love and forgiving and good stuff like that. But in order to make Holy Scripture say what he wanted it to say, he obviously had to take a, a, a scalpel to it, left, right, and center, and not just get rid of the entire Old Testament, but actually... Um, he had to reject, and he did, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke was okay, as long as it was heavily edited. And gone was the book of Acts, and First and Second Timothy, and Titus. And what he was left with was just ten letters of Paul, which also had to be carefully edited. Well, Marcion was uh, excommunicated from the church in AD 144, but his teachings were actually very popular, and Marcionite churches sprung up and flourished for a few centuries to come. But the controversy forced Orthodox Christian leaders and thinkers to ask, should we keep the Old Testament? And if so, why? Well, the other person to know about was uh, Montanus. Uh, Mont Montanus um, makes his appearance in the story of the church in the second half of the second century, um, around 160 AD. And uh, he started out as, 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 as something of a prophetic voice, a harsh critic of an increasingly worldly and secular church. A voice coming out of the wilderness, if you like, out of Asia Minor, and he denounced what he saw as a compromised church, compromised by greed and laziness and an unwillingness to suffer for the gospel. And uh, he became popular. People liked that message, and they flocked to him, and they followed him. And there was, uh, without question, a great deal of truth in, in what he had to say. And if he'd stopped there, he'd probably be remembered as one of the church's earliest reformers. But he didn't stop there. It all got a bit carried away. He was joined by two women claiming to be prophetesses, uh, Prissa and Maximilia. And the whole thing basically got weirder and weirder. When the two women prophesied, they spoke uh, in some kind of 
ecstatic trance and with different voices and actually with different personalities to that which was recognizably them. And over time, the movement left any kind of Jesus-centered gospel proclamation and became completely about this new age of spirit-inspired worship in which books weren't necessary at all. And in response to those kinds of developments, again, Christian leaders were forced to think about, well, do we need books? And if, if so, which ones do we need and why do we need them? Well, even in New Testament times, there was a recognition that the writings of the apostles, that they were authoritative in the same way that the Old Testament scriptures were authoritative. The apostles were already recognizing that about each other. Peter writes about Paul's writing, saying, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. You know, he writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Um, uh, Peter knows that to reject Paul's writing is to reject the word of God. It's to reject the Bible. And, and, and that, dis that destroys folk. The apostles were self-consciously aware that they had authority from God to communicate authoritatively a gospel that actually they had no authority to change. Paul writes of this gospel that has been given to him. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul knows that he has authority to teach the gospel he has received as it is God's gospel. To distort Paul's words is to distort God's words. Yet and nevertheless, that doesn't make Paul God. Paul has God's authority to teach God's gospel, but no authority to change it. He, he writes um, in that same letter, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And he's covering himself under that curse if he changes God's gospel. So then the early church understood that the writings of the apostles stood alongside the writings of the Old Testament as God's word. So the first and primary function of the New Testament is to preserve apostolic teaching, their witness, uh, what they remember about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament 
was still necessary in its own right as Holy Scripture, as God's Word, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, equipping the saints, making people wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The the Old Testament is the right light in which to read and understand the New Testament. Because, you see, we will, we will misunderstand the New Testament, and people routinely do, if we do not read it in the light of the Old Testament. All the time you hear about new and different readings of the New Testament. You can, you can have a liberation theology reading of the New Testament or, or a, Western, um, a Western English-speaking reading of the New Testament. Um, There's many different ways in which to understand what is being said. You might have a feminist reading of the New Testament. Many different ways of understanding what is written there. No, actually, the right way of understanding what is written there is in the light of the Old Testament. When we read the New Testament, we need to basically read it as Hebrews. We need to read it as Jews. The Old Testament allows us to do that. And we will misunderstand the Old Testament unless we read it in the light of the New Testament. In fact, the Old Testament, without the New Testament, is depressingly, shockingly, depressingly incoherent. Boy, I would hate to have to live with Genesis 1, 2, and 3 without Revelation 21 and 22 as the answer. Imagine that. Um, um, there is a veil over it whenever it is read. No, it's incomprehensible unless you read it in the light of Jesus Christ, with him as the subject, with him as the solution. Jesus is the person who makes sense of it, who, who, who brings the threads together, the loose ends into a coherent pattern, into a beautiful tapestry or Persian carpet, if you like. But with respect to the New Testament, by the end of the 4th century AD, the 300s, the whole church had agreed on just 27 books out of a whole bunch, just 27. They belong in the Bible. And these 27 books, along with the 39 found in the Old Testament, they were understood to be canonical. They were part of the canon. Now, canon, uh, with one N, uh, comes from the Greek word uh, for rule and means ruler. The thing against which you measure other things. Um, So the ruler, the rule, is the Bible. So one reason for adopting uh, 27 books into the canon was apostolic authorship. The apostles wrote this. That's reason one why it should be in the Bible. Reason two for adoption into canon was the need for a particular writing to be read or used in church, every church. And in many of Paul's letters, he specifically commands that what he has written must be read aloud in everybody's hearing, and indeed, sometimes he says, and in other churches too. And then you swap what... What I've written to them, you swap and you read their their, their letter. Everyone's got to hear it. It's necessary. The apostles certainly taught and wrote more than was eventually accepted into the canon. But what was accepted into the canon 
was both necessary and sufficient. They wrote more. They wrote lots of stuff. We only have two of Paul's letters to the Corinthians, and they are probably 2 Corinthians and 4 Corinthians, or maybe 2 Corinthians and 3 Corinthians. We call them first and second. We've lost the others. We don't need them. What we've retained is necessary and sufficient. The, second, the third reason for adoption into the canon was something a little bit harder to articulate, but something that's widely, um, widely almost uh, uh, for Christians universally experienced, and that is a self-authenticating quality in those 27 books that makes them distinct, that makes them unique. People encounter Jesus when they are read. The Holy Spirit inspired their writing and continues to speak through them in a way that is unique. Many Christian books are inspiring and edifying and might be used by God to speak into people's lives, but in a different way. The, the church continues to recognize the New Testament canon as God's word, God's voice. People continue to meet Jesus and surrender their lives to him through reading the Bible. Uh, nevertheless, this idea of canonicity has continued to, to cause controversy and debate even down into the age in which we live. Um, if you were with us uh, three years ago, you may remember that back in 2017, we did a five-part series of sermons on Martin Luther and the European Reformation. And Martin Luther believed that the Bible and not the church, not, not the Pope in Rome, but the Bible was authoritative in matters of faith and doctrine. Martin Luther's Roman Catholic adversaries uh, said, No, Dr. Luther, you're wrong. The church gave birth to the Bible. The church defined the canon. Therefore, the church continues, must have more authority than the Bible. Therefore, the church has God's authority to move with the times, uh, to change and modify the teachings of the Bible as might be necessary. The, the church is the final authority because the Bible came out of the church, not the other way around. So the church is informed by the Bible and traditions and common sense, but it is authoritative, not the Bible, Dr. Luther. And ever since uh, the European Reformation of the 16th century, the 1500s, this has been the everyday meaning of Catholic. Uh, um, those Christian denominations which see the church herself rather than the Bible as being the final authority. Bishops and councils interpret the Bible in the light of tradition and in the light of common sense, and they give authoritative interpretations. So a Roman Catholic, for example, might ask, wanting the best possible answer, the answer with authority, and just say, for the sake of argument, they uh, want to think about, you know, they're, they're, they're wanting to understand God's view on divorce. They, they might ask, what does the church teach about divorce? But a Protestant, in, in contrast, wanting the definitive God's answer on this question, will ask, what does the Bible teach about divorce? 
And last week we looked at this word Catholic and this word that has so many different meanings. And I gave two last week and I spoke about how St. Barnabas is a Catholic church and I am a Catholic Christian in at least two separate and distinct ways. However, today we add a third meaning to the word Catholic as it relates to the concept of canonicity and church authority, the church, not the Bible, as its supreme authority. And in the sense in which we're viewing the word today, St. Barnabas is not a Catholic church, it is a Protestant church. And I am not a Catholic, I am a Protestant Christian. And that's because canonization is recognition, not authorization. Historically, the early church recognized that 27 documents that had an apostolic origin were God's word in the same way that the Old Testament was God's word. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Scripture is self-authenticating. Christians recognizing their Lord's voice as they read it. Scripture is self-authenticating in the same way that the color green is self-authenticating. We don't decide what's green and what isn't green. We recognize what's green and what isn't green. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonian Christians, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Well, what we've now learnt today can hopefully clear up one common misunderstanding. Um, occasionally today, people discover that there were many, many, many religious writings about Jesus back in the first century, indeed in the second century, not just the ones in the New Testament, Many Gospels, in fact, not just four. And when they hear this, they go, oh, no. Uh, um, uh, 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 there's, there's obviously been a cover-up, a conspiracy by the Vatican um, or whatever religious authorities who want to be selective and promote only those versions of history that they are comfortable with and that say what they think ought to be said. But this is, of course, nonsense. There's never been any kind of conspiracy or cover-up, at least not of that sort. R rather, we've always known that there was a vast sea of religious literature written in the early centuries. The Shepherd of, of Hermes, the Gospel of the Hebrews, the Gospel of Thomas, the Revelation of Peter, the Acts of Peter, and all those various infancy Gospels that tell us all the amazing things what Jesus did when he was a baby. Some of this stuff was good and inspiring, just not top draw. Not actually of apostolic origin or necessary to all churches everywhere, nor authenticating as God's word. And some of this stuff was just plain awful. Um, written for really bad reasons, to draw people away from Jesus Christ. Pushing the agenda, particularly of the Gnostic movement. Well, in looking at these things today, I hope that we are now all prepared to answer some of the questions and concerns 
that people have about the Bible and its origin. The God of the Old Testament, we're sometimes here, or sometimes people will say to us, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love and forgiveness. Well, no, try reading it. The Bible is selective. There were many writings about Jesus that the early church rejected. Quite true. But that doesn't mean that the truth is out there. No, no, actually, the the truth is in here. The truth is a person. The, the, The truth is Jesus of Nazareth, present in here by way of the Spirit. And another question, what is the difference between being a Catholic and being a Protestant? Well, hopefully we've got some ways of explaining that too. The reception of the Old Testament canon by the church, as well as the canonization of 27 New Testament documents, that historical thing has planet-shakingly huge ramifications and implications. It means that the job of the church fundamentally is to teach the Bible. I'm not suggesting that's the only activity of the church, but the fundamental job of the church is to teach the Bible and to teach it faithfully and to teach the Bible as it is God's Word with great patience and careful instruction in order that we might all know, love, trust, and obey Jesus Christ as Lord. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say exactly what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And the Lord be with you all.